Hello and welcome back to another special interview show. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host for today, Eric Butts. Today, we are thrilled to have Daniel Harrell, the Baha'i International Community's representative to the United Nations. Hello, Daniel. Hi there, how are you? Good. Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, give a little bit of background. Sure. Well, firstly, I'd like to say thank you very much for inviting me to the show and a spe special hello to all the colleagues at Seton Hall University. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be with you. So I am, as mentioned, a representative for the Baha'i International Communities United Nations office. There are actually four of us. I've been in this role for about 13 years uh, because I think I, I just can't get enough of uh, international law and diplomacy, as we'll hopefully hear in due course. Okay. Yeah, I should also note that we had, I'm part of a class right now called the UN Field Seminar, where we do field trips every week to meet with different representatives. And we, our class did a trip to your beautiful building, uh, the Baha'i International Community in New York, right by the UN. And you, we were very thankful for you to, to for welcoming us there. It was our pleasure. Okay. To start with, I'll be honest, until I did that trip, um, before I, I did some research before going, I had never heard of the Baha'i International Community or the Baha'i faith in general. Now, some of my friends had, but I haven't. And I assume that maybe some of our listeners haven't either. So could you maybe start by giving us a bit of background on what the Baha'i faith is? So first to say that until I went to university, I also hadn't heard of the Baha'i faith. Uh, I be befriended a, a colleague at school and she was a Baha'i and I was very confused about it, particularly this idea that the Baha'i community holds, which is that there is only one religion. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is essentially a system of knowledge that we learn to apply to our everyday lives, just like there's only one science. And we have to figure out how that physical science can sort of guide the needs and, and demands of our physical beings. So the idea of, of one religion or one faith is that you know, God brings divine revelation to humanity at certain key moments of his or more likely her, her decision. So just like a, a teacher in school will apply a lesson that is appropriate for that student, religion likewise is an iterative process. And as humanity grows and learns and, and has confronts new challenges, these divine messengers uh, come and teach humanity lessons appropriate for that time and day. And location. So we have, you know, Abraham and Zoroaster and Buddha and Krishna, Muhammad, Christ, uh, all of them are part of that, the same lineage of divine teachers. And Baha'is believe that there's a teacher for today called Baha'u'llah, who was um, born and, and raised in modern day Iran at the time it was Persia. And his basic fundamental lesson is the idea that humanity is one and that we have one shared planet. And we have to learn how to live as, as one global community in one place. And so he actually, in fact, did lay out the fundamental prerequisites for a global governance system where our loyalties are to all of humanity, not just to one nation, creed, or, or any sort of population. And as such, the Baha'is have been involved at the United Nations since it was the League of Nations. We do fundamentally believe that the challenge before us is figuring out how to be one species on one planet. And moreover, that, that religion will continue to inform humanity long into the future, that Baha'u'llah is not the, the last prophet of God to give us these lessons, but just the one 
suitable to the age in which we live now. And I found that idea quite appealing when I was mm -hmm. in my younger years, and, and I still find it quite appealing, of course. But it was quite a contradiction because I had always seen religion as a source of division, and this mm -hmm. promotes religion as a source of unity. Yeah, and I'm curious, and I'm not a specialist in theology, nor I imagine are you, but I do go to a school that is Catholic and I have some interest in it. How does the Baha'i faith treat other religions? Because, for example, like I know in Islam, they recognize Jesus as like a prophet, but they also say that Christians are infidel. Like, how does the Baha'i faith, when you're taking into kind of absorbing in some ways all these other traditions, how does the Baha'i faith today view itself as compared to other religions? So one's decision to ascribe to a certain religion is really between them and God. Mm -hmm. So, and what ultimately matters most is the way we live our lives and how we treat others. You know, my wife is not a Baha'i and the individual who ultimately paved the way for us to get married because parental consent is a requirement in the Baha'i faith was a, a pastor, my in-laws pastor. And as I, I will say to my dying day, if all of us were Christians the way that he was a Christian, God bless us if we could all be Christians. Mm -hmm. That name, I don't believe God really cares. Mm -hmm. Does it matter if I call myself a Muslim or a Jew or a Baha'i? Ultimately, that's between me and God. Yeah. And so I think my understanding of, of how the Baha'i faith interprets other faiths is that so long as you're doing your best to follow the laws in a way that is respectful and, and kind and, you know, embracing the spirit of the age, that's yeah. what matters more than anything else. One last idea I'll, I'll offer, because I think it's a value, it was a valuable lesson to me, is that the Baha'is faced persecution in Iran from what is primarily a, a clerical Shia Muslim population, mostly at the hands of, of the current, you know, the current leadership. And one of our colleagues who works to defend the rights of the Baha'is uh, in Iran became known as the Baha'i defender of the Shia Muslim because she works on freedom of religion or belief. And uh, that is the principle upon which this whole area is founded. And that means for everybody, even for those who mm -hmm. may not accept Baha'is we would defend their right to freedom of religion or belief, again, provided they're not engaging in acts of persecution and you know, hostile discrimination. Everyone has that right. So here was this woman representative to the UN for the Baha'i community who mm. is known as you know, a defender of the freedom of religion or belief of a population that some might consider the main persecutors of the Baha'is themselves. Yeah, and I wanna pick up on something you said in your little monologue there about um, keeping in, in, in times with the spirit of the age. And then a second thing you noted and you just breezed over and you didn't dwell on it, but it's worth noting is that you just mentioned that the Baha'i has a woman as a representative to the United Nations. So yeah, so in some ways the Baha'i seems to have, and I would really hesitate to use the term because it's charged now in a partisan sense, but you seem to have some more liberal ideas, what kind of ideas in general does the Baha'i faith and community express? Yeah, you're right about this, this way that language can shape our interpretation of, of certain ideas. So maybe I'll just articulate as you ask some of the ideas. Mm -hmm. And I'll note also that I'm actually the only male representative of the Baha'i community to the UN. I think there are seven of us 
mm-hmm. and six are women. So you're stuck with me. My apologies. Um, <laughs> How did this happen? <laughs> that's that's on your professor. I, I worked with him for on a couple of projects, and so <laughs> okay. Um, maybe maybe next time you'll be lucky enough to work with with some of my my colleagues. But it, you know, a couple of the principles that we ascribe to and 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 do our best to advance. We are imperfect as well. Mm-hmm. Um, are the equality of men and women. The soul has no sex, no caste, no class. And so, you know, that foundational equality is really important. The elimination of the extremes of wealth and poverty. There will always be a diversity of, you know, wealth and and all of these things, but that the extremities of it, both extreme richness, you know, material wealth and extreme material poverty are fundamental challenges. The harmony between religion and science, the elimination of all forms of discrimination, you know, even concepts like a universal auxiliary language are written about in the Baha'i faith. And it's not to say that that one language or one people should should colonize another, but that wouldn't it be grand if all of us were speaking a second language? Because mm-hmm. it's sort of an advantage that those who are speaking the, the dominant language yeah. can essentially run circles around those who don't. If we had a universal auxiliary language, that would be very interesting. Now, whether or not and how these principles come to the fore, we will figure out in time. So these principles of the Baha'i faith, uh, we think, are are commensurate with the needs of humanity today. And in fact, we see that many religions are also embracing them with essentially different readings of their their historical texts and theology in order to align with it. And at a fundamental level, it's it's an interesting practice. And many would say that it it undermines sort of the orthodoxy of a religion, but then others would say, no, religion is it also an evolving system of knowledge? And so we have to evolve as we recognize certain principles that we once held as sacred are no longer applicable in the in the modern world. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because and if you learn about the history of certain religions, at, at the time of their founding, they might have been quite revolutionary even. I've heard that said about Islam and, and Christianity, but as time evolves, they become very like you said, kind of in the orthodoxy of their text, and it becomes tricky. It's hard to imagine. It's been asked before, why didn't Jesus say anything about slavery? Well, he lived in zero AD. It's just like it's a very different time period, and it's a very different world that we live in now. So I, I'm interested by this idea of keeping in time, uh, keeping in with the spirit of the times. So I want to ask now specifically about the Baha'i international community. Now, you mentioned this is actually an integral part of your faith, which is interesting because is it political? Is your faith explicitly political or do you keep that separate? So it it depends on how one understands political. Political. When it comes to partisan politics, we take a hard pass. Um, (laughs) Partisanship, as, as one could imagine, is essentially inimical to this idea of unity. If you look at processes where parties are formed in, in any sort of context, uh, whether it be political parties or, or otherwise, in fact, essentially the, the winner becomes the victor and then the losers are the opposition. Mm-hmm. Now, in a, in a spirit of unity and, and you know, harmony, it's very hard to perpetuate a partisan system that can sort of allow a richness of our diversity to come through peacefully and constructively. So in terms of partisanship, we're, we're not involved to the point where we are not permitted to engage in partisan elections. So if you have to be a member of a political party mm-hmm. in order to vote, then we don't vote. Mm-hmm. But it is also incumbent upon us to engage in 
the affairs of humanity. So when there is an election, as long as there isn't that partisan requirement, it is necessary for us to participate. So we have a, a tremendous engagement in the civil processes, but we are not a political movement. Uh, it's, it's actually much simpler than that. Like we are mm -hmm. not interested, for example, in, in regime change in any part of the world. What we're interested in is people's rights being respected uh, mm -hmm. and, and the fulfillment of the promises uh, that we think governments have to their to their population. So some may may conceive of it as political, but if if you engage with Baha'is in our perfect sense, like no Baha'i is perfect, right? But mm -hmm. we're all trying to work iteratively towards this. And if you if you really learn about the way the community is trying to approach these issues of political concern, we are trying to do so in a way that finds unity and builds on it that sees that point of agreement as the, the fundamental building block towards a better world, rather than yeah. points of adversarialism and disagreement. There is, of course, a learning approach. We are meant to always be, be growing and learning as human beings, and that includes those with whom we would disagree. Mm -hmm. But also, we have a responsibility to be humble and, and to learn from, from others. And so it's political in the sense that we, we hope for a better system of managing and, and providing for all of humanity. Mm -hmm. But it's not political in the sense of of gaining power over others or seeking any kind of uh, authority or political appointments or things of that nature. Okay, yeah, and I think that that is a clear enough distinction. And I want to look at sort of the ways that you accomplish these goals, starting at the UN system, because I know you have other operations more locally. But starting at the UN, well, it's a system that's designed originally, at least, for states, for nation states, I should say. And even then, it's not a particularly democratic institution, we could say, at least in the Security Council, for sure, it's not particularly democratic. How does a, an outsider, so to speak, such as yourself or even other NGOs, how do you make your voice heard at the United Nations? Yeah, so there are a couple different strategies that, that different organizations and populations use to, to be heard at the UN. Um, the most traditional methodology is to engage with the formal UN processes through what's called ECOSOC accreditation. That's the Economic and Social Council. Um, there's provisions in the UN Charter that allow for the participation of non-governmental organizations in the affairs of the Economic and Social Council. But that is but one of a number of charter bodies. So the General Assembly, the Security Council being two, two others. And we don't actually have as civil society a formal way of engaging. But we can make our contributions, and we also, you know, our office, for example, is right across the street from the UN. Earlier today, I was at one of the UN mission offices speaking with one of the delegates about an issue of common concern. And it, a lot of our, our most profound engagement is bilateral, um, just by being in the spaces and, and calling people up and using WhatsApp, which is the, the modern language of diplomacy, to, to engage with others. Much of the approach that uh, those in civil society have historically taken is around uh, adversarialism, so holding governments to account uh, and trying to uh, use that, I would call it stick rather than carrot, to ensure that, that rights are being fulfilled and that commitments are, are being made and met. However, the, the way that we approach things, as you know, perhaps you could guess, is not through an adversarial mechanism. It's more discursive, collaborative, consultative. 
And so what we try and do is bring diverse populations together into our office. I mean, the, the reason, as you referenced earlier, that it is a beautiful office is because we want that when people come to our space, mm -hmm. they, they are able to enjoy and feel a, a sense of nobility. Mm -hmm. um, and that we think sets a human being in a better position to be open to learn from others and to you know, be a little bit more relaxed and, and feel goal oriented in our, in our engagement. And then we speak frankly to the best of our ability and, and openly about some of the challenges facing uh, humanity. So we have things like you know, ongoing breakfast series or lunch series where member states and civil society and UN agencies come together and we speak about these, these issues. And there is a degree to which there are a lot of words. And I think that's a legitimate critique of the, the UN mm -hmm. is, is that you know, a lot of ink is put on pages year in and year out, but how much of that ink leads to, to meaningful change in the lives of, of human beings. But we also know that language and rhetoric leads to, to difference in thought and difference in action and behavior. Yeah. Uh, and so there is also a, a utility in engaging the, the discourse itself and helping that evolve because that has knock-on effects for how we conceive of the world and development and ultimately each other and our purpose on this this small sphere uh, that we call mm -hmm. it. And you mentioned, and I was going to ask about this, about hosting a lot of meetings in your office across from the UN. What kind of role, you talked about how that is to facilitate discussion on all these different subjects, productive hopefully or not. What role does the Baha'i international community play in these meetings? Are they are they present? Are they acting as like a chairman? Are you making your voice heard too, just small nudges? Or what kind of role do you play in these, these meetings? Well, that sort of depends on the, the meeting itself. I mean, mm -hmm. we've hosted meetings here that we are not invited to. Yeah. And that's totally fine. We, we, that's the purpose of our space is to yeah. allow others to, to use it for their purposes as well. We feel that the convening of spaces is something that is useful in and of itself. If I were to speak about some of the main accomplishments of the United Nations, I would say that its convening power is one of its lesser touted but more impactful contributions to the history of humanity. I mean, never before have representatives from every corner of the world been able to meet in one space regularly. That's an amazing yeah. statement. If you were referring to Christ in zero AD before, if you had told the people at that time that one day everybody from every country in the world, they wouldn't know what a country is, but everyone from, you know, representatives from all different corners of the world could meet regularly in one building. They would say, you're out of your mind. Yeah. So that that is a, an important dimension. So for us, this idea of convening in and of itself is is quite an important matter. Um, but then when we have when we offer our our contributions, what we hope is distinctive about our contributions is yeah. that we're not working on behalf of any sliver of a population. That is mm -hmm. to say, you have, and it's very important to have, but there are organizations that are exclusively focused on women's rights, exclusively yeah. focused on youth or indigenous populations or linguistic minorities, all of these. And this is vital and you need that expertise, not to discount it at all. But we also need generalists who are thinking, okay, if you're advertising for this, if you want to expand the pie for this, what does it mean for that? How can we approach things a little bit differently? And I'll give you one small example. I was in a room in a consultation in our office, uh, and one, one individual was speaking about the rights of persons with disabilities, uh, an issue with which I, I heartily agree. And as they were speaking, they were saying, you know, 1.5 billion people in the world are, are living with a disability. 
And I, I, because I was moderating the discussion, I took the microphone next and I said, that is absolutely true and wonderful. I would just add that the other 6.5 billion people in the world benefit when persons with disabilities have greater access to the resources of humanity, you know, have, have greater um, impact and, and voice in the decisions being made. And in fact, the innovations that bring about the uh, capacity for persons with disabilities to engage have knock-on effects for all of us. One small yeah. example on this call right now, we can have a transcript made very quickly. That, yeah. you know, one of the reasons that happens is so that people who are, are deaf can actually read what's happening in a conversation. And here we are benefiting from that technology. And this happens in so many dimensions of our lives. And so that contribution, while, while somewhat small, actually changes the scope of what we're doing from working on the, for this 1.5 billion people with disabilities to all 8 billion of us who are part of the human family. And that mm -hmm. kind of contribution rings true to everyone in the room. And it also can be brought to any sort of space that is created, whether here or across the street. So that, that I think is one of our, our distinctive aspirations for contributions. What yeah. is it that is in the interest of all humanity? Yeah, it's this kind of knock-on effect that nothing, nothing is is local. Everything is local, and nothing is local, so to speak. There's knock-on effects to everything, and we're all one international community, which is something that you've mentioned a few times. And I wanted to—we talked about this before in, a, in our class, but we talked about the concept of nationalism, which is a subject that's interested me personally. But nationalism, and we don't realize it, our national conception of countryhood is something that is so deeply ingrained in us. That even when I, I talk about, I like history, when I look back at a period like the Roman Empire, I still conceptualize Rome as like a country, but that, that wouldn't have existed at that time even. So for you, what are the, so to speak, the disadvantages of this ingrained national conception? And what, what do you view as a, a world beyond nationalism? So you asked me some of the disadvantages and what's a world beyond. I'm going to follow my own path, chart my own course, and talk about some of the okay. advantages first. Okay. So that, so that there isn't this misunderstanding that, yeah. you know, here come the Baha'is trying to eliminate the nation state. <laughs> um, the advantages are that this principle of subsidiarity is really important. That is, you know, applying governance principles at the most local level possible. At times that may be at the level of a community, a village square, you know, it, it can be very local. But at other times it does require a nation. Uh, it requires this, this human organization at a more macro scale. And because of the, the distinctions between nations, based on culture, based on history, there are real advantages to those national borders and differences. There is no one way to, to govern. And that diversity is actually, actually can be a tremendous strength uh, to humanity. So what we are talking about is not the abolition of nation states. However, there is a difference between sovereignty and autonomy. Uh, right now, state sovereignty is this idea that every country can do whatever it wants within its borders. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a disadvantage to the, the global community, not only because others outside the borders may not benefit from what happens inside, but also because there are certain policies that can, can take shape within a country that have disadvantages for neighboring countries. Mm -hmm. And that has to be understood. And, and that's a fact, that's a well-accepted fact. The failure of imagination, I think, that, that I find we run into time and again is thinking about things grander than the nation state. What is the next highest level of organization? 
And for some, it's regional organizations, and for others, it's a, a world federation of sorts. And I, I'm not going to, to you know, mm. put all my eggs in any basket, but I do think that we have to be thinking beyond just the nation state. And, and the reason being, not only because of those disadvantages, but also because everything now is global. Uh, I mean, our, our packages arrive late or early, depending on supply chains on the other side of the earth. It's, it's, yeah. it's an amazing reality. I mean, COVID, to say nothing of climate change or, or human trafficking, is a global phenomenon. And if we assume that 193, as the, the UN categorizes countries, 193 countries mm -hmm. can solve a global problem like COVID or climate change, even through you know, promises, domestic promises, that, that is a kind of a pipe dream. And so we have to start thinking what is beyond our current conceptions. What if we're thinking about the opposite of subsidiarity? I don't know what it is, macroarity. What are the things at the at that more macro level that can only take place at a global scale? And and interestingly, we have this in a number of spaces. Uh, we just don't really talk about it. You know, the reason you can call internationally is because of a, a, a United Nations telecommunications organization. The reason you can fly internationally is because of a United Nations airline conglomeration. You know, there are things where we have agreed as humanity that our sovereignty can take a backseat to in favor of something more like autonomy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that it's very logical that it works in, in many spaces, and in fact, more and more spaces. But we don't just say, we can't just say that this is a new thing because it's not new. We have it in a number of different spaces yeah. as those I just mentioned. And the question is at what point are we willing to overcome our national pride, our personal pride, our, our thirst for, for power to mm -hmm. say, actually, in this case, to use an analogy, I'm gonna stop at the, at the stoplight so yeah. that others can go. Because yeah. I believe in a global traffic system rather than just, I get to go through every intersection willy nilly. I think that's kind of the question. And I, I don't think, I don't pretend to have the answers, but I do think we have to be honest about the limitations of the system we have if we are going to be able to find the solutions together. And, and what would you say to someone who says, well, that's great and all, and that's really idealistic, but let's be realistic. Come on, this is not going to happen anytime soon. We got to work with the system that we have. What would you say to someone like that? Well, I'd say two things. First, you're being idealistic if you assume the system we have is going to work. Mm -hmm. I'm being realistic saying it has to change. Yeah. So let's just quickly change our frames because yeah. you're the idealist and I'm the realist. The second thing I would say is you're right. We have, to, to use another analogy, which is how I think, our, the house is on fire. All we have is a garden hose and the garden hose is filled with holes. You're right, we should tape up this garden hose as best as we possibly can. But ultimately, all we have is a garden hose. We need something else. So I will work with you to tape up this garden hose so it can flow as strong as it very well can. But I also know we gotta call in the fire brigade. We need a whole new set of things to try and, and, and combat this fire. And it would be silly for us to say, oh, it's still just a small fire. We can do it with a garden hose. We can't. And so we, we, we do have this dual responsibility. And I think that there's sometimes a confusion about what we're really doing here. Are we repairing a garden hose? If so, let's do it. Let's do it the best we can. But let's not pretend like that's going to be sufficient. And then on the other side, when we're working on the, on the new system, we can't forget that there are people dying right now. There's people starving. Like We can't just give up on them and say we have to invest all of our energies in this. It's this delicate balance 
yeah. of the things that are possible and feasible now that we must do and the things that seem impossible and infeasible that we will one day need to do. And keeping both of those in our minds at the same time is, a, is sort of a, a fundamental requirement if we believe in reform of the international system. Is there anything you want to leave off on? Any, any final notes before we head out? Yeah, maybe one thing, because this is a, a student a student podcast, in a sense. I yes. think that, that you know, the role of, of youth is often touted, and I, I believe in it. It's super important. But youth doesn't end because you hit a certain age. Mm -hmm. You know, part of what, what gives me my energy and my joy in this is that I have come to terms with where humanity is, mm -hmm. but that doesn't require me to sacrifice my aspirations for where it could go. And I think that's a really youthful way to approach the problems we face today is to say, we have a future that I believe in and I can do my best with, and I will work towards it. But I also know that there's horrible things happening today. That sort of dichotomy exists and will always exist. And I think it's one of the qualities of youth that, and the young at heart, it's not mm -hmm. just youth, but, the, but all of us who are able to say, Things as they stand are imperfect, and I'm going to do my best to change them, but I'm not going to, to sort of settle for where they are. And, and I think that that spirit of endeavor, initiative, creativity, innovation, that's something that, that I want to learn from. And it's why when your class came to my office, I spoke yeah. about it for a week because I leave so <laughs> energized by the wisdom and the profoundness, the profundity of the questions you ask. Uh, and it's really inspiring. And so I want to thank rising generations for their work and look forward to to working with you and learning from you as you know the years and decades pass well hopefully us the younger generations can can live up to your expectations um and the youthful at heart for, for, for multiple generations okay thank you daniel thank you so much for taking the time to sit down for an interview with the global current it was really interesting to hear about the baha'i faith and its role on the international stage um, so thank you so much for coming on. Thank you again for having me and all the best. Thank you so much for listening. This episode would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, such as executive producer Jasmine DeLeon and technical producers Andrew Reculia and Bobby Kyle. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU.